I'm Jason Baylor-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is Emily Lieber. I am so excited to have her on the show. She is a curatorial assistant in the Department of Painting and Sculpture at MoMA, and for the last three years, she has been working on the Robert Rauschenberg retrospective Among Friends. We speak about how, well, and particularly this retrospective speaks to looking and narrating Robert Rauschenberg's career through the lens of collaboration and collaboration with other artists. It's something that I think is really important for all artists to consider and how they approach their own work in the studio. So this conversation was something I had built up for for a while. I'd done a lot of research and was just sort of giddy about getting Emily uh, on the show to, to speak about it. We also speak about Eleanor Anton, and Emily has a close connection to this because her dissertation for her PhD was on Eleanor Anton and specific works in her repertoire. We have a very good conversation about the history of her work, but also about the racial context of some of the works and how Emily, as a curator, deals with those aspects of the work and navigates issues that could be potential conflict for a contemporary audience versus an audience when the work was actually created smart and thoughtful conversation in regards to that. There are many other things that we hit during this, but I need to also give you the details on the Among Friends show at MoMA. Robert Rauschenberg Among Friends will be on view at the Museum of Modern Art May 21st through September 17th, 2017. It was organized in collaboration with the Tate Modern in London. Robert Rauschenberg Among Friends is organized by Leah Dickerman, the Marlene Hess Curator of Painting and Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art. Eichem Barhart Hume, I know I'm saying that wrong, uh, Director of Exhibitions at the Tate Modern, with Emily Lieber and Ginny Harris, Curatorial Assistants, the Department of Painting and Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art. The exhibition's design at MoMA is created in collaboration with the acclaimed artist and filmmaker Charles Atlas. In addition to this retrospective's presentation in New York, Robert Rauschenberg was on view in a different iteration at the Tate Modern, December of 2016 through April of 2017, and will be shown at San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, November 18th, 2017, March 25th, 2018. So, without further ado, here's Emily. Emily, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Looking yes. forward to our conversation. Well, first, you and I met, I think it was close to five years ago, at a party here in L.A. So When I was living there, I think. I spent a year year plus in L.A. while I was finishing my dissertation, as you know, and one of the great things was just somehow in that pretty short amount of time, I um, got to know a lot of really terrific people whom I'm still in touch with. First, I want to state your background so everybody who's listening mm-hmm. knows exactly what you do and why we're talking. Mm-hmm. You are the curatorial assistant in the Department of Painting and Sculpture at MoMA. Can you tell us what, what your job is or what it sort of entails right now? Sure. Well, I, um, I began working at MoMA about three and a half years ago. I came on specifically to work with uh, Leah Dickerman on 
a retrospective of Robert Rauschenberg, which opens next month. So it's kind of um, hard to believe that this project that we've been working on for um, going on for years, we're now talking about shade, what shades of white paint we want to paint the walls. Came on just as the project was starting, when it was an idea. The the starting point was to do this retrospective of Rauschenberg, but to narrate his career through the lens of collaboration. So with the idea that essentially to understand Rauschenberg's career from 1949 to 2008, the year he died, our viewers would need to understand the kinds of dialogues and conversations that he was in with other artists, dancers, musicians, and writers. So the the starting point was that the, the exhibition would narrate his entire career, would put on view these kinds of exchanges. And from that point, we sort of rebuilt the story that will now show audiences at MoMA starting in, in May. And some people, of course, when I tell them I've been working on this one exhibition for three and a half years, that sounds like a long time. But of course, it is. You know, not, not every exhibition takes that long. I think it's a real luxury. What The reason, you know, what it began with was really just a year and a half of research, kind of delving in and going through archives, going through secondary reading, going through interviews, and really determining, you know, as a team, curatorial team, determining what what the story was. And what was important to, to sort of portray and sort of put forward for people to look at. Right. And then so figuring out what the story was, then figuring out what are the objects that best tell that story, and then the sort of more logistical things where are those objects located asking people to lend them to the show and all of all of those pieces. But the long lead time really was to to take the time, do the research that would would develop the story. So so basically to get back to your original question, so I've been I've been at MoMA um, kind of working on this show with Leah and other other team members start to finish. And it's been great. Another and actually another interesting piece of the story of the, the show's evolution was actually that very early on, one of the first things I did when I got there was to work on a class syllabus for a seminar that Leah co-taught with Hal Foster at Princeton for Princeton students. The idea here was that to kind of get our heads into the material, we would do that through teaching. So sort of teaching oh, that's amazing. as a way to curate. That's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, it was terrific. So we organized the 13 weeks of the seminar around different collaborations. So essentially, each week was a Rauschenberg and Rauschenberg and Plumlee, Rauschenberg and Johns, Rauschenberg and Performance. And it gave us a chance to get our heads into the key texts and and to have conversations about them with the students. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the the visual materials that you compile for a class are first half of the checklist. You know, when you ask yourself, which, you know, group of combines am I going to put together in the PowerPoint for um, the combines class? Uh, Not that there was actually a comment class, you know, but, um, you know, that's the initial way, that's the initial path of the checklist. This is really interesting to me because Rauschenberg strikes me as one of the most prolific artists in terms of, well, output, but also his collaboration with other artists. I mean, we're talking Trisha Mm -hmm. Brown, John Cage, so Merce Cunningham, Johns. I mean, what what you just mentioned. I want to get into that in just a little bit, but I think what you're talking about with the class syllabus, it's really interesting to me that your approach to this and how it actually sort of directs your your understanding of how contemporary artists work today as well, too. 
And I wanted to talk a bit about an article that you wrote because mm-hmm. the article was called Aggregate, Morph, and Multiply, mm-hmm. or the piece. I don't know if you'd call it an actual article, the, the writing. What did this appear in? This, that was the intro text for catalog that accompanied the Columbia's first year MFA thesis show, which I curated. So it was sort of my curator's introduction. I mean, the gist of the piece itself was talking about how they responded to politics and political action. To me, what stood out was how you interpreted how they actually worked. And I see the parallels between what you're working on now with Rosenberg and how you interpreted Mm -hmm. what they were doing in the actual studios at Columbia as well, too. Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right to pick up on that. And that the chronology of these two projects was that, as I said, I've been working on Rauschenberg for three and a half years. And then I curated this show at Columbia starting really the, the project began. It was essentially February, February, March, April. So definitely my head was very much in Rauschenberg. You can totally see it. I, I yeah, want I wanted I, to read like a section of this for you real quick. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, I'm sitting here with it in front of me, but I actually marked a few of these things to read. The one that I wanted to read first was, you say, well, art school offers a rare chance of development of individual work. Its most meaningful opportunities often lie in the vibrant engagements that happen among members of its temporary community when ideas aggregate and morph and perspective multiply. I thought it was mm-hmm. just very astute and like right on point with how artists actually engage, especially in a in a studio program like an MFA program. I think you're absolutely right that that in fact I use in the text I use a quote by Rauschenberg, and I think you're right that on on one level it's just because I do have Rauschenberg very much on my mind. Can I read so the quote? Form my thinking, but yeah, sure. <laughs> I actually have that one highlighted as well too. <laughs> you write uh, Robert Rauschenberg, one of the most inventive and prolific modern printmakers, once mused. I've always been attracted and tempted into nearly any situation where the final work is a result of more than one person's doing. That's why I like dance, music, theater, and that's why I like printmaking, because none of these things can exist as solo endeavors. Yeah, and that's, or I use that quotation in a text about these you know, young, emerging artists, because I, I do really think that that way of working is one of his important legacies. You know, one of the ways that I hope the show will feel relevant to audiences in 2017. I'm Um, super excited for it. It's one of the reasons I was really excited for this interview, too. I didn't, first of all, I didn't know you were working in the Rauschenberg show right away when when we started mm -hmm. talking. And then I found out you were working in the Rauschenberg show. And I felt incredibly nervous because there's so many questions that, I mean, Rauschenberg was fundamental to me growing up, not in grad school, but in undergrad. It's one of those artists that I... Yeah, being from the Midwest in Rauschenberg, being from, you know, he grew up in a situation where he sort of made out of what was available. Absolutely. Right? And I felt this inherent pull to that work because you could understand where it was coming from. I think when you were sort of a a layman coming into this situation, looking at a work, you could understand what the the proposition he was trying to put forward was. And it was an Mm -hmm. easy read, but it was also, you felt sort of it felt intellectual at the same time. Promise is going to be the last quote that I read from any of this stuff. But this, this, one, this one piece, it was so good. You, you mentioned in here, and it brings me to how you work. So this is why I wanted to mention it. Because I, I, was, okay. thinking, I was thinking about you when I was reading this. Quote Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf famously observed nearly nine decades ago in a room of one's own. There's an incalculable benefit to making art in a space that is yours a space to be filled with personal sources of inspiration to be entered and exited at any hour, day or night, and to be barricaded when necessary from external distractions. So 
right away, this seems like a contradiction to the earlier things we said about collaboration, because it seems very individual. The difference between how individual artists work and sort of put work together, but more directly, I wanted to know how you actually function as a curator in your research and your understanding. Do you do it individually? Do you do it as a team? Like, is there a mix of both? How does that work for you? Well, you know, I guess actually, I, I think it is it is interesting to think about this this kind of connection between how I work and and how and how artists work, or the the sort of collaborative aspect of both of those things. I mean, as you as you mentioned, I did have this academic training, undergraduate, graduate school, and then did not ultimately take a primarily academic route. Um, although, you know, I think teaching and teaching and research and many of the things that I enjoyed. What, what do you mean? It's not an academic route. Like when I'm looking at the well, CV, I mean, it looks I that way. I didn't apply for a, a tenure track position. And that would have been the difference. So like enlighten us who don't know how the cur- curatorial world sort of works. Your sure, options, your options were what? <laughs> sure. So, you know, I think most people finishing a PhD would, or maybe I shouldn't even say most, many, many people completing a PhD would go on to a teaching job at a, at a college or university. Because it's um, I, although more and more, certainly more and more um, people are, I think, finishing graduate school and um, in art history and taking multiple paths, um, whether that's in writing or editing or. So what curating. is the this is multiple questions, I guess. So are there multiple people in your field at your level that have PhDs? Is that like a common thing or not? And. What would be the point of getting a PhD and going into your field? How does that, I mean, obvious reasons, because you, you have more history and understanding of what you're actually dealing with, but like, tell me why. I mean, I have a handful of, of peers who are sort of curators who um, have gotten PhDs, and there are many who are doing terrific work. I mean, I guess I'll go back to even your, your first question when you were asking about how the kind of solitary studio versus more collaborative mode of working, how that how that works for me. And I actually I think that that's very much why I was drawn to curating as opposed to more kind of solitary way of working. Um, I mean, I think that, and I think about, think about my time in graduate school and so much of it, you know, writing the dissertation, so much of it is spent alone. You know, of course, when you're, you know, when you're in an archive, when you're sitting at your computer writing, you are by yourself, but when you're making a show, it's a collaboration between so many people. I mean, it's a collaboration between the other, you know, if there are multiple curators on the show, it's a collaboration between the multiple curators. It's a collaborate. There's a publication, of course, that entails working with designers and editors and color correctors. And now that we're in the installation phase of the exhibition, it's working with registrars and designers and art handlers. And I love creating a project with many, many people with such a diverse range of expertise. And that to me is so much of, you know, of the pleasure of making an exhibition. So I, you know, I think that basically creating an exhibition, it's, it's a version of storytelling. Could you also, you could certainly also tell that story in a written form. You don't get to work with as many hands. You know, one of the ways that I got to really think about that was, I know we'll, we'll talk more about this later, but was when I was doing graduate work on Eleanor Anton and also curating a show about the same body of work. So I was thinking about the body of work as a curator, but also thinking about the body of work, you know, in the context just of scholarly text. And I just I really I loved thinking about it in collaboration with other people. 
We are going to get back into Eleanor Anton a little bit, but just a quick question as you mentioned this, so I don't forget later when we're talking. When you were doing the research on Eleanor Anton, did you know that you were going to curate a show on her as well, too? Not initially. So what was what was that, the impetus for sort of why did you do the research on Eleanor Anton then to begin well, with? Well, that was who um, I was writing my dissertation on Anton, and that that project actually began in a in a different sort of way. Began Eleanor Anton was going to be one of several protagonists. I was going to think of the project began as being a project about humor as a strategy in feminist conceptual art. And I was going to look at Anton and multiple other people. And then when I, I tried to sit down and move the project forward, I realized I just had um, way too many things in the air. And so I let Eleanor be my protagonist to look at these these other ideas. I think this but, is a perfect um, time. Let's talk about Eleanor Anton. We'll skip. I was going to go into Rauschenberg, but we can do that later because Eleanor is a major part of where you've been and how you've actually sort of come to produce the things you're doing right now. And mm-hmm. by looking at all the things that you sent me to read... There's a ton of reviews in there of this show that you curated, and it looked like it had two two exhibitions, one at Columbia and one in Boston, correct? It was, it was the same show, essentially, but... but traveling. Um, it traveled, yeah. Janelle Porter organized Which it is pretty amazing. IPA Boston. Not often that a graduate show gets to travel to another another region so people can understand it and sort of participate in that. Yeah, I was really glad that the show had a, had a wider, so, wider audience. I'll be honest, out of all the stuff that you sent me to read, Eleanor Anton was the one that I had the most trouble getting in depth with because it seems to me the work is so hard to describe without being a participant in seeing the actual work. It can read as sort of dry, but I'm imagining that it's anything but that when you're seeing the videos of of her work. Can you explain who she is and why she's sort of relevant in a, I know that's a very, you just wrote your dissertation on this person. So I'm not asking for, <laughs> give me, give me, give us a brief description of, of. Eleanor Anton was a, she's still, um, still around, still making work. Um, she began making work in the early 1960s and it's probably best known for her work in the, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, early 80s. She has been based in San Diego since 1969, but kind of started out as an artist in New York in the avant-garde circles of visual art as well as poetry. She was married to David Anton, who is an art critic and poet. And that's why they moved out here, correct? They moved out here because he got a job out here. Yes, exactly. He got a job at UCSD, and they were part of this really interesting community. This was one of the things that um, drew me to the project, sort of this very interesting community of artists, musicians, writers who had all gone out there, essentially around UCSD. So there was this very interesting kind of leftist intellectual community in a um, military town, and really interesting things happened in that setting. Um, but Anton's work crosses uh, photography, tech, theater, performance, narrative. I think one of the things that's very interesting and and always uh, rooted in feminist politics. And I think one of the things that's very interesting about her particular mode of performance in the 1970s was the way that she brought theater into it and narrative. She had actually begun her career as an actress and as a poet. And I think those roots are very evident in her work. So my interest was the way was in the way that she brought together these mediums and narrative to look at different different forms of um, identity and subjectivity 
in a way that that I thought felt quite relevant now. And that was why for the for the exhibition, I focused on a particular body of work, her cells, she calls them. They're a series of personae that she invented between 1972 and 1991 um, and inhabited in different ways. She They included two ballerinas, a king, an exiled Russian filmmaker, and two nurses. They all, all of their narratives are in some way rooted in failure. They're all kind of at odds with the worlds that they inhabit, with these invented worlds that they inhabit. And it's never a complete transformation. They're, each character is very much Eleanor Anton as something else. I think that's important because one of the ideas of the project is that each person contains many, many versions of themselves. So I felt like this body of work would be particularly interesting now in the context of types of performance that are being made. Well, it seems very um, contemporary. Yeah, it feels very contemporary. I I actually thought about this body of work in relation to art that's being made now um, in a new way as a result of one of the the programs that I I organized in conjunction with the show. Alex Zagade and Marie Gaines of My Barbarian spoke in a panel um, with Eleanor, and they, uh, as well as Jay Gordon, the third uh, founder of My Barbarian, have spoken about the importance of Eleanor's work to their own. And so I wanted to involve them in the project. They also wrote through the catalog. And one of the things that Alex said in this panel was that he related the way that Eleanor had, the way that her cells were all tied to her in some way. He related that, that idea that one person has kind of multiple identities within themselves. He related that to a kind of collective production that's important to his practice. And I thought that was a really interesting trajectory to think of from the 70s, 80s to the present. Well, all of the reviews that I read were, were glowing. So it was difficult. <laughs> they gave good mm-hmm. descriptions of what they sort of were. And she was, uh, she's often compared to Cindy Sherman because of her use of like transformative uh, self and this, mm-hmm. this idea of identity. Mm-hmm. But one of the reviews in here struck me as interesting. And there's a point in here that I actually wanted to bring up with you. And it relates to contemporary work and some of the issues we're dealing with right now. But in the Observer article at the end of the piece, he says, if the work often seems contemporary in its casual use of stereotypes and tropes like blackface, it just as often looks dated in its privileging of gender and religion over arguably more pressing issues of class. It was a really interesting observation talking about how something can be dated and also be contemporary. But also Mm -hmm. it brings up this one thing. One of her ballerinas, this persona that she portrayed, was a a white woman in blackface. So... Mm -hmm. If that was done today, specifically given our issues currently with what's happening at the Whitney and everything else, how do you deal with that? I don't, I'm not saying how do you justify it? I'm saying, I I think one of the things that I, I took issue with wasn't with the Whitney thing in particular. We're talking about, I'm talking about Dana Schutz and the issue of this painting of, of Emmett Till is specifically that I didn't get a clear and concise answer from the curators as to why that piece was selected for the exhibition. And without talking about that and your views on the Whitney piece, this piece with the, ba- the white woman in, in blackface, how do you as a curator justify using that piece and how does it work today where it might sure. not? Sure. No, I think that's a really important question. Um, to give a little background, um, to fill in the background for, for listeners, the project that you're talking about is one of Anton's cells, and in fact the cells that she was engaged with the most extensively was Eleonora Antonova. Um, Antonova's story was that she was an invented character, 
an African-American ballerina who had been the star of Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. Anton explores this narrative through a number of different projects, including plays, photographs, live performances, drawings, texts. The central story of each project is sort of Antonova's plight, is that she wants to play the classic ballet roles like Giselle and play uh, Marie Antoinette. But Diaghilev says that the color of her skin only authorizes her to play more exotic types like Pocahontas. Right. Um, and that's their sort of their central struggle. What's I think interesting about this story is that, you know, Anton's talking about race and performativity in the 1970s and 80s before that conversation had, you know, taken quite the form that it has that it did later. But she did to inhabit this role, as you mentioned, she did, she darkened her skin with makeup. And yes, I think this is extremely problematic. There's no question about that. And yes, as a curator, I, that, that was a dilemma. You know, how do you, how do you put work in a show? You know, I, I didn't want to not include it because it's, it's a seminal piece for her, right? Like it's a, it's an it's important work. It's a seminal piece. It's an important work. Yeah, it's an important it's an important piece of this project. It's an important piece of of Anton's story, and there are interesting facets of the work. But yes, of course, I was not comfortable in in 2013 when the show went up, you know, with a, a white artist coloring her skin temporarily to inhabit this you know this other subject position. So the way that I dealt with it was by including the work and trying to frame it through the catalog and through programming. So the catalog, you know, the Anton's use of Antonova has traditionally not been fully dealt with in the literature on Anton, with some exceptions. Um, Cherie Smith wrote a a strong book on performance and race, um, talking about Anton among other artists, but it has not been been largely dealt with in the literature. And so, um, because because it's problematic, you think? Yeah, I think that it's sort of not dealt with, or it's been typically kind of justified or not fully addressed. Gotcha. And um, and so I invited Huey Copeland, the art historian who has written uh, wonderfully about the performance of race in recent contemporary art, to contribute an essay to the catalog that dealt with this, that that focused on this particular persona. You know, because I thought that Huey would really offer a critical, thoughtful take on the project, and he did. So, so the way that you dealt with it is by addressing it immediately. Before the exhibition opened, and have it in writing. Well, by, yeah, by framing it in the catalog. Yeah. By being, I mean, certainly by being upfront about it, both in the in the exhibitions and surrounding materials, but also by by really framing it in the catalog, which is the lasting. Right. That's going to be there long after the exhibition. the exhibition closes. Yeah, and it and it also came up in Malik and Alex's text about the work. They actually produced a new performance of a, a piece that started Eleanor Antonova called Before the Revolution, and it's from 1979, initially performed at the kitchen, and this reimagined on the occasion of the Gettys Pacific Standard Time in 2012. Malik and Alex urged Eleanor to actually cast an African-American actress, Danielle Watts. This is what I was going to ask. Today, if it was reproduced, would it be an African-American artist that was in there? And it's exactly what you're talking about. Yes, yes. So I think that that was really important. So recognizing that there are ways that the initial project is still interesting and is still relevant and there are ways that it has to um, be different. And the artist artist can acknowledge that 
they can adjust the piece to fit a changing time too, which I think is Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. interesting and super important and very smart on the part of the artist, but also on people involved in sort of producing that too. Oh, and and the last thing I'll just say is that also in the catalog, there's an I interviewed Eleanor and I asked her some questions about that. So I, I tried to to think with her about the context in which she had made that. So I hope that through the catalog, we do contextualize it. And I don't think it's about justifying or not justifying it. But, you know, in presenting an artist's career, this is this is a piece of the story. And I, you know, I think that the curatorial responsibility is to contextualize that story both in terms of the way that it was made at the time and in terms of the way it might read now. Well, you're never going to answer everybody's questions or, or be able to justify every action for every individual, but to work to try to get someplace in there where people feel comfortable about addressing the issues, I think is really important mm-hmm. for the curator and for the artist. It's it's good mm-hmm. on you for like making that happen ahead of time. I think it's just really smart. I guess let's talk about Rauschenberg a little bit. So yeah, here, here's the thing. There are so many questions about Rauschenberg, and I'm sure (laughs) I'm never going to... One of the really stressful parts about this for me, I've been really looking forward to this interview, and I'm talking about Rauschenberg, but I didn't know where to start because it's such a broad spectrum of things to actually talk about, right? Right. So anybody listening, I'm going to pre-apologize for not asking the question you want to ask, but I I have a few (laughs) in here based on the writing, and I, I guess I'll just start. Rauschenberg, this is a question that is sort of generalized toward all artists. And I've talked about this before on the show where we make tons of work in the studio and much of the work that we make is not for public consumption because we're getting to a place with, with the work where we need to be to actually produce the final piece. Right. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately based upon how we have to produce the work and make a living and sell and some of those pieces get out into the public. Rauschenberg being this prolific artist. I'm sure some of the works out there are not the the cream of the crop for Rauschenberg. And it goes to say for many, many other artists out there as well, too. I guess this was a sort of question from a curatorial standpoint. When is it an artist's sort of obligation to edit and filter for the future? I mean, I don't regard that as the artist's obligation. I think that... um, I mean, I don't know if I do either, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that curators and artists would probably tell different stories. The artist's primary responsibility is to is to make the work. I don't even know if responsibility is the right word, the role. You know, I see my role as a curator in telling a story from that work based on my knowledge of the artist. So you're um, saying we should be less stressed is, out. Right, right. Let us, <laughs> let us do the, um, let us do that, that piece. No, I, I think that and I think this is true for any kind of creative production. I think that thinking about the reception, I know I think about this as a writer, thinking about the reception and letting that kind of impede too much on the production can be really paralyzing. Yeah, no, you're um, absolutely right. So I would I would hope that artists would make work, you know, following the kind of the questions and the, the curiosities that interest them, you know, and then the stories that get told get get created later. So, okay, that, that's a great answer, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to chill out, chill out a little bit, essentially, right, but right. I'm not a chill person if you didn't know that. <laughs> okay. So let's just hit a couple things about Rauschenberg that I noticed. And this is more of a academic wise, the print comes up often in the writing that 
that you sent me. And was this, mm-hmm. this writing was out of the catalog? Yeah. That's for the exhibition. Yeah, I sent you my essay. That it, it really, really good. It was fantastic. So, and oh, it brought you. up many things that I didn't realize about Rauschenberg. One of those things was his, he, he had sort of a complicated nature with the idea of the print. And early on, mm-hmm. and if I correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, early on, he was trying to make large prints and he was making prints off of newsprint articles and they were one for one scale. And he had an issue with producing larger prints and doing that one for one because I think he felt sort of the compositions were wrong and it didn't fit the purpose or the intent of what he was doing. So long term, he spoke to Warhol at one point in time and Warhol gave him a new process for making these prints. And then he ended up scaling the articles and the things that he was doing into larger scale units. And at the time, the largest scale print made and it was around a wall and around a corner, correct? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm right. I mean, more or less, I would, you know, I guess just one thing I would, um, yes, tell me, <laughs> I would say is that, I mean, you're, you're right. He was always trying, he was always interested in a, a kind of question he returned to again and again and again was how to print big, how to scale up the print. And I think that, that the medium of print was so meaningful to him that he just sort of was always kind of thinking about how to, you know, really thought about it as a malleable medium, so many inventive ways. And I think this is also one of the reasons that print was so important to him is that it is such a collaborative process. Well, and you say in there too, Uh that he felt victimized and limited by the one-to-one transfer of those images. Yeah, I think those are his words. Yeah. Well, yes. I, excuse me. Yes. <laughs> Which I think is interesting. I mean, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's raw. It's super raw. When he was feeling limited by the one-to-one transfer, I think you're talking about the moment when he had invented a process called photo transfer. He had been sort of experimenting with different kinds of prints, but the photo transfer method that was something he began experimenting with in the early 1950s. He would take images from magazines and other forms of mass media lay them down on a new surface, wet them with solvent, usually leather fluid or turpentine, and rub them so that they release their image onto the new sheet. And then, yes, as you said, it was this was an interesting way to bring matter from, you know, everyday media into his work. But because of that process, he couldn't he couldn't go big. And well, then that was well documented studio visit with Warhol in nineteen sixty two. And though he was familiar with the silk screen process, Warhol showed him these silkscreen paintings he had been making. And then there's this nice exchange where he sort of clued into this idea through this exchange with Warhol. But Warhol is also excited to Rauschenberg the studio and asks Rauschenberg for some photographs of himself and his family. And Rauschenberg provides those and Warhol creates these large scale silkscreen paintings with portraits of Rauschenberg and his family. So there's this nice kind of back and forth. Well, it follows a history of him collaborating with, with other artists, right? Yeah, absolutely. It leads me into studies for currents, I believe, six, mm-hmm. 36 collages, right? The work mm-hmm. uh, reproduced a series of 36 collages, studies for currents, 1970. Headlines, text, photographs that Rauschenberg gathered from eight contemporary U.S. newspapers over a period of two months. This is the relevant part to me, this next part. Of his decision to use multiple newspapers simultaneously, he explained, one reads a newspaper, absorbs the information, no matter how disorienting, distressing, and inflammatory it might be. When reading five or six papers with the constant repetition of items, the devastating news has a serious impact and it cannot be ignored. So it, it's, it's today. It's the internet, basically. Right, right. 
So to me, this struck me as being such a precursor to us understanding what we're living with now and how mm-hmm. we're dealing with news that's coming in on a constant sort of this barrage and mm-hmm. and how we deal with it. So, I mean, I guess talk to me a little bit about that. Do you think, where would he be today? How does this, how does it reflect? I don't even know if there's a question in there. It's just more of a statement. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that he was absolutely thinking about, I mean, certainly the, I mean, I think you're talking about a barrage of information and what we do with that. I think that was something that had fascinated him throughout his career. I mean, he, he would always, he would make work with televisions blaring and, I think there's also this, you know, sort of interest in reading many newspapers and getting the information from many sources. I actually think that's related to the importance of collaboration to him, this this constant dialogue with other people. Do you think that's how he filtered information too? By using... In, in, in part, yeah. Yeah, like by using all of these collaborations, he's able to e- to understand how they function or work for other people as well as himself. Yeah, I mean, I, I do relate his his interest in making art, as he put it, from the real world and his fascination, his constant fascination with the materials that were around him, the, you know, the detritus, the cast, he was always looking at the materials that were right around him. And I do think that's related to the fascination and constant exchanges with the people who were around him. I do relate those two things. You know, speaking about technology more specifically, I think that one of the really important moments in his career was in the 1960s, the founding of Experiments in Art and Technology. He co-founded that with the artists Robert Whitman and the engineers Fred Waldauer and Billy Kluver. And Experiments in Art and Technology was essentially a matchmaking service that facilitated collaborations between artists and scientists, and that allowed each to make projects that they couldn't make on their own. So I, I think that Rauschenberg was very much interested in in the possibilities of, of technology that has, you know, have obviously have emerged much more since then. Some of the kinds of technology that they were using do read now as precursors to what we think of as a digital age. It's sort of inspiring. Hopefully, we can reach that sort of same level of precognition about what we're going to do, what's going to happen in the future as well, too, like as artists today. There's so many different Rauschenberg things here. I want to talk about collaboration and activation of sort of objects and all these things. But really, I think we could go on and on about Rauschenberg in probably privately, I will ask you individual questions <laughs> some other time. <laughs> um <laughs> Yourself, I haven't actually talked about you too much in here. You were in California doing your dissertation. Did it have anything to do with the fact that Eleanor Anson moved to California and you're writing your dissertation on her, like at the same it time? I did, yes. I moved to L.A. in part because her archives had become available at the Getty Research Institute. And so while I was finishing graduate school and, and finishing the dissertation, it was very useful to have um, constant access to those. So there was that, there was the possibility of, I was living in LA and she was in San Diego, sort of very easily popping down and seeing her. Are you from the East Coast or where are you from? I am. I'm from New York. You're from New York City. So was that your first long-term time in LA that year? That was my first long-term time in LA, although I have lived in other places. I love New York dearly. Um, and it is very much a part of me. But I also, I am not one of these New Yorkers who thinks that it's the only place on earth. I have loved living in other places, including LA. That was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> do, how do I feel about LA? I, I, love LA. Um, I probably feel 
closer affinity to New York. I really do appreciate both cities for kind of separate sets of pleasures. I think it's, of course, a terrific art scene, fantastic art schools, and incredible artists making work, and artists and non-artists starting these really interesting spaces. I think there are fabulous curators working out there. Very, I have very positive feelings toward L.A. On that note, I think this might be a good place to end it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it was really good. Emily, thank you um, so much for taking the time to, to be on the show. I really appreciate it and being so open. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for um, an interesting conversation. Thank you.